Our Father, we give you thanks that um, in Christ, your mercy is more, that you, you forgive us. And you, you don't just forgive us, but you call us as your children. And you love us as, as a perfect father loves his children. And you promise us all provision and care. You promise us your inheritance. You, you've given us so much in Christ, and we ask that you would um, help us to understand better what it is you've done to us and for us, and that we would better live in light of those things. We pray as we open up Ephesians and just, just barely begin a study of this wonderful book that you would, by your Spirit, illuminate things to us and even transform us more into the image of Christ and, and knit us together corporately. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You guys may be seated. And actually, I'm going to do something. I'm one of the worst picture takers, but not, not in this moment. <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to get a, a photo of you guys. All right. Perfect. We'll uh, just have that on hand for future reference. Um, you know, I'm going to, yeah, I'll take that. I like having a stand. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So if you, want to, if you have a Bible, if you have an app, go ahead and turn there. And by the way, this is a Bible study, so you know, it's not a sermon. You can, you can raise your hand and ask a question if you like. There will be a time for small group discussion. We'll break up into little groups, and I've got some questions based on the text. But today, we're just going to look at a very... Uh, short section of Ephesians as an introduction. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and I guess I should probably read it just because of the mic, so it's heard. Um, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, when I was a kid, I loved the weekends. Um, I mean, Friday school gets out and it was just like a, a weekly celebration. For for oftentimes we'd get pizza which pizza is my love language, so that was very beneficial to me as a child. There'd be a, a movie, we'd watch a movie as a family, maybe we'd play some board games, an occasional friend would spend the night on Friday, we'd get to stay up late and then wake up the next morning, you know what breakfast was? Donuts! <laughs> donuts, maybe pancake. it was always something good, but usually quite often donuts, Saturday morning cartoons, Muppet Babies, if I was feeling kind of edgy, I might watch Dungeons and Dragons was on Saturday mornings, Saved by the Bell. Uh, and then once those cartoons were over, it was just like free rain play all day. But there was a blight on the weekend for me, and it was two hours on Sunday morning. The most boring two hours of the week, I thought, happened on Sunday. It was painful. Now, obviously, my opinion has changed. <laughs> I thought I'd kind of picked the wrong line of work if I still felt that way. Um, what we're doing 
is, is, is remarkable. It is remarkable. As Richard said, that this is just a building, but when God's people show up, this is the dwelling place of God. That's what Paul says in, uh, in this book, in Ephesians. He says that each of us are a living stone. We're being put together in a, in a temple and being built up as God's temple where he dwells corporately as a people. It's remarkable. So th- think about this. Okay, God is, is dwelling in our midst. Now, wh- who is God? What is God like? Well, y- as, you, as you know, he's a, he's a triune God. He's a trinity. There's one God, but there's three persons. The, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And so, from all eternity, God has had all pleasure, all delight, all love within himself, perfectly satisfied as the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Spirit is lovingly interacting with the Father and the Son, and there is all delight. You could think of it as this wonderful cascade of love just flowing down to each person of the Trinity, perfectly satisfied. So when God created the world, it wasn't like he was just lonely or he was like bored or had some kind of unmet love need that he needed to fill. No, rather, creation is an overflow of that love that exists within the Godhead, within the triune God. Okay? So, something went wrong, as we all we feel, if we, no matter how, as close as we look on, on life, and as far as we zoom out, we see trouble in the Middle East, we see trouble in our families, trouble in our own hearts. Sin has entered the world due to our rebellion against God. And he could just bring swift judgment to the world, but he's chosen to allow the cascade of love that exists in the Trinity to flow down upon earth in the the work of Christ. And I've said this before, when 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 a church is planted, a window to heaven opens. So what the scriptures say is that the body of Christ, a local congregation, is a site where heaven touches earth. It's a site where this cascade of love like touch, touches ground, touches earth, and is manifested amidst the people. Like Paul's going to say all of that in this book. And so, far from being the most boring two weeks or two hours of the week, what we're doing here is remarkable. Now you may be thinking, well, that all sounds good, but I was like I was burned by the by the church. And I've had some really bad experiences. How, if this is the love of God, then I don't really want anything to do with it. And I I understand the the struggle and churches are not perfect, right? We're we're working asper my little bag of markers. Um, we're working at, aspirationally to be what God has called us to be. <laughs> that compliments of my daughter, Cora. Hooked me up with that. Um, so two ingredients need to be in place for the church to be firing on all cylinders. Two cylinders. Okay? And you, you guys have seen this before. Um, the church must have solid gospel doctrine. Right? Get... Be centered upon Jesus and his work for us. Plus, that G stands for gospel, plus gospel 
uh, I'm sorry, gospel culture, in other words, that doctrine can't just stay put. It has to manifest itself within a, it has to be like lived, right? Manifested within a community. When you've got gospel doctrine and gospel culture happening in a church, you've got the power of God at work in the world. Power of God. It's bad handwriting, but that's, that's the algorithm for you math, math folks. Gospel doctrine plus gospel culture equals the power of God. Okay, if you, if you have gospel doctrine, but you don't have gospel culture, you, that creates hypocrisy in the church. Okay, so gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy. If you have gospel culture, but you don't have gospel doctrine, that equals a fragile church community because it's not nourishing itself off of the beauty of Christ and his work for us. It's not getting the, the, the doctrine part, and that's important. So, by God's grace, we aspire to have both gospel doctrine and be marked as a gospel culture, which lovingly and warmly embraces one another, and, and even those that are not a part of us. Okay, so, why, as we, as we begin, so that's in the backdrop, as we begin thinking about the church, why the book of Ephesians, of all the books? There's 66 of them. Why did we choose Ephesians? Well, because in Ephesians, Paul gives his most um, systematic and thorough description of what the church is. And that's why we're going to get into it, because it's just like a blueprint for what we're doing. It's, it's, it's the perfect book for us to begin this journey as a church together looking at. Okay, so let's jump right in. And uh, we're doing good on time, I think. Okay, so Paul, an apostle, of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul wrote this book. Um, unlike our letters, right? We, we write the letter and then we put the name at the end. Uh, but that's not how ancient letter writes. It's actually better the way they did it. Because every time I open a letter, I have to look all the way down. Maybe it's too... Look at the bottom and then you figure out who it's from. Right off the bat, Paul, he's writing it. And he says he's apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul, what is an apostle? An apostle is, is a person sent by Jesus himself to go do the work of ministry, to share Jesus with the world and to lay the foundation of the church. Like commissioned by Jesus himself. Now there's a problem for Paul because Paul wasn't interacting with Jesus during his ministry. And so this is like a little issue for Paul that he has to deal with because how can he be an apostle? And so how is he an apostle? Well, he has this dramatic experience, right? Paul is actively pursuing Christians so that he can kill them, put them to death. And Jesus appears to him in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus and says, follow me um, and you're going to be my disciple to the Gentiles is the, you know, the, the summary. And so Paul says, this is where my apostleship comes from. Jesus appeared to me, a real Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus and he commissioned me to be the minister to the Gentiles. And so the letter is written to the saints, the Christians, who are in Ephesus. 
and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Um, let, me, let me draw a quick map real quick. If you know your ancient world, you've got, we, we, you got Italy, right? And then come down here, there's Greece, and then there's another little section of land. Um, actually, that's not exactly how it works. It's definitely not how it works. Definitely not accurate, but it gives you a feel for things. Okay, so Italy, Greece, Ephesus is right here, and this is the Mediterranean Sea. So Ephesus is a coastal city. It's a port city, which means that it has a lot of uh, a lot of traffic, a lot of outside traffic, a lot of sailors coming in, which creates a dynamic, maybe not a, a great dynamic for Ephesus. It's a cosmopolitan. City, it's an economic center. It's a place where um, the worship of Artemis, the, the, the goddess, the goddess of fertility, is strong. There's a temple to Artemis in Ephesus. And Paul begins ministering there, and there's a church that develops, and that's who he's writing to here. And the church is actually does pretty well by New Testament standards. I mean, there's not any major flaws that it has. Here's an interesting thing. In Acts chapter 19, Paul declares the gospel to the church at Ephesus, and it has an effect on the local economy. Like, there's, there's public consequences to this gospel. And when Paul preaches it in Ephesus, there is this, um, the cell of idols goes down. Okay, and the idol makers get really upset, angry, and they blame the Christians for this. And so they stir up this riot, this mob described in Acts chapter 19. And the next thing Christians know is that they're literally being drugged out into the city streets and thrust into the middle of this mob riot and being blamed for the downturn in the local economy in Ephesus. Okay, and the local authorities step in and settle things down. But this is like, this is kind of their, this is their experience as being the church. Like, this is what it means to be a Christian. You could just be going about your business, and the next thing you know, you're getting drug out into the, into the streets and getting blamed for the problems of Ephesus. So, now, so they're, they're, they're a people, a local congregation in a, in a spot in the world at this particular time. But Paul also says this, you are faithful in Christ Jesus. In Christ. Um, and so think, think, think of it this way. You can think of it like we're in Christ, right? We're, as, as we're his body. You can also think of it as like a tree. That each of us is like a branch. And we're rooted in Christ, our trunk. And if we're all individually rooted to, to Christ, we're also rooted to one another, right? And, and not only that, this is where it gets kind of crazy. Paul says in chapter 2 of Ephesians that Christ, when he saved us, he seated us up in the heavenlies with Jesus. Okay? So the church at Ephesus, and and by extension this applies to us as well, um, they're in Ephesus, but they're also somehow seated, their primary dwelling place is at the right hand of God with Christ in the heavenlies. So they they are now aliens as a result of being in Christ. If you're in Christ, it makes you an alien in the world, is maybe one way to, to put it. Um, 
you are part of what Augustine called the city of man, or I'm sorry, the city of God, or the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is, is growing and taking root in the kingdom of, of this world, right? We're a part of a new world order, but it's taking shape in the old, um, which is why we're still located here. But we're aliens. We're a colony of heaven, right? That's the language. Okay, this is what I want to focus on. That's just a little bit of background. Um, I want us to settle in on the grace and peace that Paul mentions in verse 2. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may have noticed that I sign every email that I send to you um, with those same words, grace and peace. Why would I do that? I'll explain why. Okay, Paul, Paul is using the, greet, the two greetings that were popular during his day. As a Jew, Paul would greet his Jewish brothers and sisters with shalom, peace, peace to you. Right? That was the Hebrew greeting. In, in the Greek, it's irene. Um, but the Greek greeting was different. It was grace, charis, um, is, the, is the Greek greeting. And so Paul is he's satisfying his Gentile and Greek audience by saying grace, and he's also satisfying his Hebrew audience by saying peace, shalom. Um, but he's doing something else, too, because what he's doing um, is he's, in this letter in particular, he is summarizing the whole letter with those two words, grace and peace. That provides a summary for the, if you had to boil the letter of Ephesians down to two words, it would be grace, actually three words, Grace, then peace. Grace, then peace. Let me, um, and that's why I, I like to sign off that way, because not only is it a summary of this letter, but I think it's a good summary of all of Christianity. And I'm going to get this thing, maybe, I don't know if you guys can see it well here, but I want to I propose to you that there are two ways to get along in life. Two ways by which we live as humans. Because the order of this, the, the grace, then peace, or grace and peace, that order is important. Very important. I think you might say it, it kind of makes all the difference, really. Um, much of the world lives their life like this. There is a God. I'm going to assume that the person living believes in a God or the gods or whatever, you know. They have a belief in some kind of divine power. So there's God, and then there's the person. And here's how life works. They must achieve peace with God. So first comes peace. And usually it's in the form of a stellar moral record. Like, if I follow the five pillars of Islam, then I can get peace with God. Or if I, you know, even in a Christian, if I go to church all the time, go to Sunday school, if I read my Bible every day, you know, you, you, you could be looking at those things as a, as a means of achieving peace with God. If that can be achieved, then you have, uh, here's a little padlock, you have unlocked God's grace in your life. So peace, then grace. And what I mean by grace is God's his pouring forth of his blessings upon you. Like first comes peace, 
achieved through a moral record, usually. Um, and then, and, and, and then um, if you, assuming you succeed, you unlock God's blessings in your life, his peace and his favor upon you. That's not what Paul says, right? He says grace, then peace. So let me illustrate. Okay. Here's God. Here's us. Separation between us, right? Our relationship with God depends upon his grace towards us. Um, So first, grace. Uh, And grace that comes to us via the cross, which then creates in our souls peace, right? Peace with God, but also even with, uh, with, na- with others. Peace with neighbors as well. David, David Brooks is a, um, he's a New York Times columnist. He's, he's written for the New York Times for several decades. He's been around for a while. And um, he, he's a more conservative columnist. But recently, he has made, he's made a conversion to Christianity. It's not 100% recognizably like evangelical Christianity, but, it, but he's claiming Christ. Um, but but he and I heard him in an interview, and this is what he said. He said that um, he had this moment in his front lawn as he was driving home from work, where 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 um, grace hit him like a two by four, because he he drove home and it was a difficult time in his life. Um, he drove home and it was summer and the the grass was vibrant and green and the. Flowers were in the yard, and landscaping looked great, and the trees were all leaves. And the sun, it was late in the day, so the sun's like shining across his yard and like making everything in his yard just pop. The sprinkler's running, and it's like the water's like crystals shimmering all over his yard. It's just a beautiful setting, and his kids are playing, running through the sprinkler and just laughing. And he said, nobody even knew that he was there, just watching. And, and, And this overwhelming sense of peace fell deep into his soul, seeing that scene. And he said, here's what's interesting. All of those things that were surrounding me were gifts in my life. Like, you can't, I mean, children, you you can't, I mean, I know how children come into being, but they're still gifts, right? Right? You, 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 You don't have power in that. Um, you don't have power to make trees grow and to make grass look pretty and green. You can help, but you can't do it. Sprinkle water, how does all that work? So all of these things that he's watching around in his, in his, uh, in his life, it was gift. And it pr- produced in him a, a peace that he said is so different than the peace that he feels, say, after he crushes a, a column and gets all sorts of attention or the, or the, or the feeling that he got from um, his workplace success. Because he's incredibly successful. He said that, here's how he distinguishes. He says that creates what he calls happiness, which is an expansion of the self. He says, but if you want peace, like joy, not happiness, but joy, that comes when the self is like forgotten and you get completely lost 
in who you are, and you're so overwhelmed by the gifts and beauty surrounding you. Okay, everything he's describing there is a very Christian thing to say. That, that the only thing to bring peace into our souls is resting in the grace of God towards us, his gift of salvation to us. Do you know how, how anxiety-inducing this model is? Oh, it, you're just like a, a, a rat running on the, the old uh, wheel, right? This is tiring. And, you know, how do you know that you're operating kind of functionally out of this? I don't know. I mean, sometimes I do, to be honest. I have a, here, here's, here's something that I have. Every day of my life, since I can kind of, since I was an adult, I've had a checklist in my mind of things that I have to get done for the day. And you know how many times I've checked all those boxes? Never. I've got this running list of just activity that I think if I can get these things done, then I have somehow validated my existence for that day. And then I get up and I start the whole thing over again. Right? That's an example of functionally operating out of this. Right? Because this doesn't come natural for us to believe grace and then peace with God or with others. So this model also uh, transforms us. Um, I'll try to wrap this up quickly. So I listened to a a podcast. um, The Gospel Coalition has a good podcast that I encourage you to listen to. One of them was called How the Gospel Confronts um, Pornography. And the there was a number of people interviewed in that, and one of the persons was a pastor who had a struggle in, the, in this area. And he like, was in deep, and, and this is like the 80s, you know, so it was a few decades ago, um, and could, was just totally entangled in it. And the thing that pulled him out, he says, is he got into a support group that was truthful towards the reality of the sin that he was engaged in, but also, most importantly, he said grace. He felt grace, grace in that place. And that when, um, when he experienced the grace of this, this, this group of men that were struggling with the same similar challenges, he felt Jesus in that place. And over time, that graciousness that was extended to him uh, broke him free from that struggle. Set him free. So it brings a, th- this model right here brings peace to our souls. It brings transformation to our lives. But it also works itself out uh, corporately. Grace and peace. In fact, think of it this way. Ephesians chapters, chapter 1 through 3 focuses on grace. The grace of God and what that means for us. And chapters 4 through 6 focuses on the peace that comes as a result of God's grace towards us. The the horizontal effects of that grace. Now, he touches upon the Jew-Gentile relation, which is a big deal in chapters 1 through 3. So I don't, there's a little bit of peace in there as well. But generally, you can think of chapters 1 through through 3 as being about grace and chapters 4 through 6 being about peace. So, let's think about how this might create peace with others. I think of my own household. And if, there is, if there's a lack of peace in the ranks, in the little, 
the kids running around and there's disorder and strife. How am I going to bring about peace in that situation? Do you know what my go-to is? What is my go-to, guys? <laughs> it's, uh, it's justice, man. You got you to gotta make, make these kids realize what they're up to. You raise your voice and, you know, put fear. Um, if we want to deal with the conflict in the Middle East, you know, do it. Only if you bring a sword can you get the olive branch. It only comes after the sword. That's, kind of, that's what we think, right? Not grace, then peace. Justice, then peace. If you're in a conflict and if you can bring down the hammer with the person you're in a conflict with, if you can present to them their folly and sin with stunning and penetrating accuracy, then they'll come to their senses. Then you'll have peace. Right? That's what we think. Paul says, not so fast. That's not how it works. It's grace, then peace. In view of God's mercy towards us, live like this. That's the, that's the theme. So whether it's in the home, whether it's in the, in the body of Christ, whether it's with coworkers, that's what we're called to. Um, that's what it means to live in the year of the Lord's favor. It's not to say that God is not coming back and that, he's not, that he will bring his justice. Um, but we live in an interim period. The year of the Lord's favor, Jesus says in Luke chapter 4. And under this new economy, this new society that is alien in this culture, God has commanded us to live really strangely, to live with a grace, then peace approach to social relations and have that kind of social ethic in place. 